This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to our first kickoff um, webinar for the Three Revolutions Future Mobility Program. Uh, the policy conference was unfortunately canceled. Um, we're we're all well aware of the reasons, but um, COVID-19 um, will mean a change in how we communicate with our, our colleagues. And um, we're, we're excited about this webinar series. So this first uh, event uh, will include Dan Sperling, founding director of ITS Davis, um, as well as Susan Shaheen, uh, UC, uh, director of the Resilient and Innovative Mobility Initiative uh, and, UC, and UC Berkeley professor as well as Salida Reynolds, General Manager of the Los Angeles Department of Transportation. We're thrilled to have all of these uh, speakers with us and we'll have more of a introduction of those of, of, of our speakers in a moment. Um, I will mention that uh, our next webinar is announced, um, is, is decided for May 18th at 2 p.m. The, the topic is equity, community, and the three revolutions. Uh, so we can uh, give you some more information about that at the close of today's session, and we'll receive some information about that webinar in your email box. So uh, without further ado, I'll introduce Dan Sperling, and he'll introduce our our, um, our other other guests. Uh, Dan Sperling, not only is he founding director of, of the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis, is also a Distinguished Blue Planet Prize Professor of Civil Environmental Engineering at UC Davis, um, and um, he is also the author of the, uh, the book, Three Revolutions, Steering Automated Shared, Automated Shared and Electric Vehicles to a Better Future, released in February 2018. Um, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Dan. Thank you so much uh, and uh, take it away. Thank, thank you so much, Molly. And you know, I wanna say Molly's done an incredible job, not only organizing this webinar, but the Three Revolutions Policy Conference that never happened last month, and our entire Three Revolutions Policy Program at UC Davis. So I want to say, you know, we are at a crossroad here, and we were even before the pandemic arrived. Most of the changes taking place from this academic, from this pandemic at this time, they're actually accelerating, exaggerating trends that were already starting to happen. So this is an extraordinary time for our society, for our economy, including transportation, which of course is the topic for today. For many decades, we saw very little system innovation in transportation, especially passenger transportation. Then about 10 years ago, it all started to change. You know, there was the one of the three revolutions that we talk about, electric vehicles. It, about 10 years ago, they became a serious option and all the major car companies launched massive electric vehicle commercialization programs with Tesla leading, leading the way. And so what we see now and what we know now is electrification of passenger vehicles and probably even most trucks is inevitable. So then we see the question is timing. The, the second revolution started about the same time, about 10 years ago, Lyft and Uber launched demand responsive ride hailing services in San Francisco. And then a large number of other companies, ride hailing companies around the world soon, soon launched similar services. And then we saw even more recently, we saw all the shared bikes and shared scooters uh, sweeping through many of our, uh, most of our major cities. And then there's the third revolution. Uh, so about that same time again, about 10 years ago, Google announced its intention to commercialize autonomous vehicles. What I would say should more accurately be called automated vehicles. Within a few years, by 2015, every major car company in the world was ramping up their automated driving investments. While there was considerable hype at the time, and to some extent there still is, it's also true that automation technology is continuing to advance quickly. 
the pandemic, the COVID-9 virus has had dramatic short-term impacts on car use, on transit, on flying, aviation, on scooters, on bikes, on goods, goods movement, as well as these advanced technologies. We've seen a, a large drop in car use, about 50%, an even larger drop-off in transit use, and uh, as well as ride-hailing and jet travel. But we've also seen an increase in bike use. And all of these have huge implications for our economy, for our environment, for our social well-being. So our topic today is which changes, which behaviors are likely to persist and what do we policymakers, businesses, researchers, what do we do about it? So we have two extraordinary speakers with exactly the expertise and experience to help us answer these questions. So first, so we have, uh, so the first speaker will be Susan Shaheen, Dr. Susan Shaheen. She's director of the Resilience and Innovative Mobility Initiative of the University of California Institute of Transportation Studies. And this is a coming together of the ITSs at UCLA, UC Irvine, UC Davis, and UC Berkeley. So she's overseeing that. She's also a professor of civil engineering at UC Berkeley and co-director of their Transportation Sustainability Research Center. She's devoted her professional career to innovative mobility solutions, beginning with her PhD dissertation on smart car sharing, in which she launched the first smart car sharing program in the world in collaboration with a number of automotive and other companies. Susan's published prolifically on advanced mobility and won many awards including the Roy Crum Award of TRB, the Transportation Research Board, its highest research award. And she will be chair of TRB next year. And oh, did I mention that she was my star PhD student at UC Davis when she was a teenager and I was 21? Just kidding. So she'll start it out and then Salida um, will follow and Salida Reynolds is general manager of the Los Angeles Department of Transportation, the second largest municipal transportation agency in the country. She was appointed by Mayor Eric, Eric Garcetti in 2014. Under Salida's leadership, LADOT has launched the largest scooter program in the world, the largest electric vehicle car share, sharing program in the world, uh, in the country and the first of its kind digital platform to manage the ride hailing companies, the TNCs and other mobility companies. She's played an increasingly prominent role across the US and the world with advanced mobility. She served as president of the National Association of City Transportation Officials for four years, which represents cities and transportation agencies in the US, Canada and Mexico. She's board chair and founding member of the Open Mobility Foundation, a public-private forum created to tackle technical issues, issues related to emerging mobility technology. And in 2019, last year, she joined the board of the Intelligent Transportation Society of America. And so uh, you can tell, you know, these are extraordinary, you know, the perfect speakers for what we, uh, these questions. So let me turn it over to Susan. And Susan's going to have a few slides to kind of frame this discussion. So Susan, take it away. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dan. And thanks to you and Molly for putting this together and uh, inviting me and Salida. And uh, Salida and I are delighted to be um, representing uh, women on this panel. So thanks for also including women in uh, your thoughts on, on this particular topic. So. Today I'm going to be talking about some of the, the changes and uh, the crises and the opportunities that we see uh, in mobility uh, due to COVID-19. I'm going to start out with the challenges and then as part of the challenges, I want to focus quite a bit on social equity considerations. 
And following that, with any good crisis, there's an opportunity. So let's talk about the opportunities that uh, lie ahead for us. I want to really focus um, keenly on two particular areas, public transportation impacts of COVID, as well as impacts on shared mobility itself, and then wrap up with some concluding thoughts that might provoke uh, some of our discussion around navigating this new normal. So as you are all aware, the COVID-19 crisis has come about and it has caused devastating economic impacts and many of which we are going to see for some time into the foreseeable future. And those impacts have also happened with respect to transportation. Dan mentioned a number of those. We're seeing definitely a reduction in vehicle miles traveled due to the shelter in place orders. And you can see here from across a number of cities in the United States, those numbers and those reductions are quite dramatic. And along with any good VMT reduction comes a reduction in our gas tax revenues. So our funding streams that help us to pay for our transportation systems. We've also seen our public transit industry reducing their schedules, their operating hours and their routes as a result of COVID-19. We've also seen that some drivers have hit the road at pretty high speeds. So we're hearing a lot about um, some crashes that are happening from reckless driving in the news. We've also seen in the shared mobility space that a number of companies are redirecting their services to support COVID-19. There's been some closures and there's also been some layoffs that we've seen occur. And one thing that I think is really important as we look at the crisis is the need for us in the transportation industry to unite, to quickly address the impacts of this immediate job crisis and its relationships to transportation as we think to restoring a safe and healthy mobility system. Social equity considerations, I think, are extraordinarily important for us to consider, particularly as we look to the interrelationships among job and food access, housing, public health and mobility, the trade-offs that a lot of households are going to have to make between buying food, paying a car loan, or paying for their rent. We really need to ensure that lack of mobility does not lead to or exacerbate further poverty and homelessness. And we really need to look at opportunities for the public transit industry, for cities, for private companies, all of us to work together to build strong economic resilience, and particularly with the thought of protecting our most vulnerable populations. So while we focus on the crisis, I think we really need to focus on the opportunities. And that's why I'm so delighted to be with you today on this panel is I do think that there's a number of critical opportunities. You know, first we've seen a 6% drop in carbon dioxide emissions. Um, for the year predicted for the total year of 2020. And to contrast that with uh, Paris targets, you know, that would be um, to meet our 2030 uh, Paris targets, we talked about a 7.6% reduction being required to meet that. So you can see how significant this reduction in VMT is in terms of our air quality and uh, climate change status. We've also seen, as I've talked about, a reduction in VMT, and along with that, the number of car crashes has gone down. We've seen globally a lot more focus on active transportation policies, Milan announcing 22 miles of streets to be converted to bike and pedestrian spaces, along with uh, Buenos Aires also thinking about the same. There's more opportunities to slow our streets down. We've seen that in the Bay Area. Opportunities to continue telecommuting, for shared mobility to continue to fill gaps in our transportation network, and an opportunity for us to look at public transit overall. I think it's going to be critical as we move forward to focus on policy, partnerships, and people. So those are my new three Ps as we think about COVID-19 and really using and uh, galvanizing these three Ps to create a much more equitable, innovative, sustainable, and resilient transportation system moving forward. So as I mentioned, I want to speak a little bit about impacts that we're seeing to public transit in a little bit more detail along with shared mobility. 
APTA has forecast a reduction in fare box revenues of approximately 75% over just the next six months. The reduction in hours and uh, routes has occurred, but we've also seen increasing off-peak and low-density service services, um, and an example of that is uh, Miami. We've also seen tremendous relief coming in through the CARES Act uh, to the tune of $25 billion in emergency funding to help our public transit agencies. But that will not be enough. We will definitely need more. I'm sure we'll talk about that soon. So Transit App recently did a survey and had a webinar, and these are some of the results that uh, came in from that that I think are interesting to, to highlight here. Uh, this survey was done um, across Canada and the U.S. And you can see about 15,000 people uh, responded to in the United States and about 10,000 in Canada. And uh, active public transit users were skewed towards low-income individuals. So people who are essential workers were largely still using public transit. Food and service and healthcare represent the greatest percentage of the active travelers. And again, that reflects our essential workers. But we saw very little mode shift for those who are still traveling in both the United States and Canada. And interestingly, when we look just to um, the Los Angeles area responding to the transit app, we see that Spanish speakers more, are more likely to continue public transit. You can see that in uh, this particular graph here. So one of the key things that I think we're going to be facing is rebuilding public, re, rebuilding the public's trust in public transportation. And in this slide, I, I indicate two different scenarios. One is of most a very likely decline and continued decline in public transit use and a slow recovery, in part due to social distancing measures and perhaps fear of higher occupancy vehicles. Other things that could lead to a slower recovery or more transit decline is multiple waves of COVID-19. But on the flip side, when we look to a more positive future, a public transit renaissance, we could see more riders uh, relying on public transit because they can no longer afford an auto. So we could see some increases there. We could also see increases due to innovations and bold policy measures, which I'm really looking forward to talking about, things like microtransit options and free transit. And another thing that we, we do think is important to consider is flexible financial models that can help to reinforce a public transit renaissance. Looking towards shared mobility, we've seen a varied range of micromobility impacts We've seen increases in public bike sharing systems through the city bike system in New York City, increasing by 67 percentage points compared to just a year before, largely due to COVID. Washington DC's capital bike sharing system, expanding their low income access program to $5 annual memberships. We've also seen other communities requesting fleet reductions or bans on micromobility due to transmission concerns of COVID-19, and in some cases, layoffs uh, in our micromobility companies. In mid-April, Lime suspended all their service in markets outside of um, all, all of their markets except South Korea. And we've also seen some innovations in terms of introducing uh, cleanliness standards and using technology like nanoseptic handlebars to help confront uh, hygiene-related issues. With respect to ride-hailing or transportation network companies and pooling, we've seen dramatic usage declines. We've also seen uh, partnerships for essential workers to get them uh, to work, but to also get individuals to medical appointments. And to prevent the spread of COVID, in mid-March, Lyft and Uber suspended their pooled ride options due to transmission concerns. So as I wrap up, just wanted to talk about how we navigate this new normal. I think with every good crisis, there is an opportunity, as I mentioned. So how can we work together in the transportation industry to create many new opportunities? We think the role of public policy is going to be critical to this, to seizing this opportunity, public transit finance, 
locking in more telecommuting behaviors, bringing in micromobility to provide those critical transit-related services, for example. A focus on people should be central to our response. We should also try to maximize the societal and environmental benefits in transportation recovery, particularly with an eye towards social equity. How can shared mobility help households that are no longer able to afford a personal vehicle? How can shared mobility be there for people who have lost their mobility but still need to travel long distances to get to work? And how can we understand opportunities to support taxi drivers and TNC workers who have invested in car loans to generate their income? How can we make sure that they land on their feet? So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and for your time and wrap up and uh, turn it back to, to Dan. Well, thank you, Susan, for framing this discussion really well. Um, before I turn it over to Salida, I want to emphasize that after Salida will talk for uh, five, five minutes, 10 minutes, and then we're going to have a, we'll have some discussion among the three of us, and then we're going to open it up for Q&A. So we'll leave at least 15 minutes for Q&A. So uh, you can see that there's a button there for doing Q&A. So uh, please submit any questions you have. A few of you already have, and we'll look forward to more. So Salida, what do you think? You're on the front lines out in, down there in LA. Uh, you're, you're experiencing this firsthand. You're the one that has to make a lot of the decisions about how do we manage all of these challenges that Susan was talking about. Any insights? I don't know about insights, but I can certainly share some observations. Um, and I and I really appreciate the opportunity to join you all. Um, you know, both uh, I'm a big longtime fan of both of your work, and really excited to be part of the conversation and and really a broad, hopefully what will be a broad conversation, uh, because it really is going to fall on the shoulders of institutions uh, like UC Davis and Cal and. Um, uh, the Institute of Transportation Studies and Tech Transportation Centers all around the United States, ITS America, NACTO, to kind of step up and make sure that transportation gets its due in terms of the depth of, of uh, and richness of the conversation we could be having. Because as you all know, uh, transportation usually ends up bearing the, the burden of policy failures in other sectors. So, you know, we have very long commutes because we failed to build adequate housing near transit and we have um, or, or we've, we've failed to have sort of excellent public schools and so parents have to move around um, to get their kids into schools that they can afford uh, and that may be really far away from where they work. And, and we're the ones that sort of need to, to fix that or to solve it. And I'm not seeing anything really different happening in, during the, the pandemic. So, you know, because we have these um, really amazing heroes, the healthcare workers on the front lines, keeping a failing healthcare system together, that is consuming almost all of the, the discourse and the thinking and the policy work um, of a lot of, of our policymakers are just trying to hold things together um, and keep our hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. And so there really, there has to, we have to figure out how to make some space for this discussion in the midst of all of this because uh, the opportunities are really, are really large. So just a, a snapshot of what's going on in Los Angeles. It's very similar to um, probably what a lot of other people in cities are experiencing right now. Um, traffic is down uh, anywhere uh, from 40 to 50% across the board at the intersections that we monitor and keep our eye on. But that also means speeds are up uh, by anywhere from 12 to 30% across the board as well. And um, at the same time, uh, bike, bike riding and sort of where we count is only down about 13%. Um, but transit ridership, uh, the LADOT transit ser service that we operate, Dash and Commuter Express, is down anywhere from 75 to 90% uh, in terms of the, the overall ridership. And there are a few lines where you can see where it really uh, continues to, to keep a lot of people on the, on the bus. Um, and those are the places where it, it really is a, a lifeline service for frontline workers who um, don't have another way of, of getting around. Um, and so I think those are, are you know, those stats are, are familiar. Uh, crashes are down citywide, 12% deaths are down uh, from, uh, from traffic violence. They're down about 22%. 
and that includes pedestrian deaths down about 24% um, because of the overall reduction in VMT. That's a normal phenomenon that we see. Um, but there's a couple of other statistics that are maybe hidden below the surface that are worth thinking about too. So uh, I manage a, a core of 600 traffic officers, parking enforcement traffic control officers, including crossing guards. And this year over last year, the number of hours that we are spending directing traffic has, in, has almost doubled by about 3,000 additional hours. And that is almost exclusively at uh, food pantries, at food drops, at LA Unified Meal Centers, at mobile testing sites, which the city has propped up uh, to test over 70,000 people. It just gives you a sense of um, how mobility and circulation is changing and how, uh, you know, sort of the, the new level of um, desperation and, and uh, poverty that is now um, emerging and in, in sort of during this pandemic and I think after it. Um, my sign shop, which is the, the group of folks who manufacture all of the stop signs and parking signs and all of those things throughout the city, every single one of them um, is uh, uh, on admin leave at home because they are all in vulnerable populations because I have a huge part of my workforce that is eligible to retire, um, which is not uh, unusual across the entire city. So, you, you know, thinking about sort of how these, these things, taking care of the workforce and taking care of the city is really massively changing the operation. I have a, a transit system inside my transit system now that moves unsheltered Angelinos to temporary shelters or to hotels or motels if they need to quarantine. I have a couple of buses on loan to the fire department um, to actually go and um, uh, implement mobile testing at uh, encampments of folks who are currently living outside so that if they test positive, they can, um, they can get access to, to medical care. And we're now in the middle of, of um, propping up a, a meal delivery service for older adults who don't drive, can't drive, um, and who are uh, afraid to be on public transit and um, are really increasingly isolated and, and cut off from services. So what do you do when you're sort of, you know, your day-to-day your -day operations change dramatically, but you still, um, you know, we had a very well-established values that we were trying to execute on. The mayor, uh, Mayor Garcetti had put out LA's Green New Deal, which had this incredibly ambitious program of infrastructure uh, projects um, that we were getting ready to start implementing. We were finally making progress on our Vision Zero goals of reducing severe and fatal crashes um, around the city. And we were beginning uh, what has been sort of a multi-year shift from thinking about the services that we deliver and the streets that we build, which we will always do, to thinking about the people we serve and what their needs are and how we could use mobility to correct uh, racial and socioeconomic inequity, to connect people to opportunity, um, to really do some kind of um, thoughtful engagement uh, with, with the neighborhoods in Los Angeles to, to figure out how can we make sure that when we arrive in a neighborhood um, that has been, you know, sort of uh, undergone decades of, of disenfranchisement, redlining, um, that we are the government and uh, we have to be really, really thoughtful about how we come into those neighborhoods now, even if we are there with resources and we are there with um, uh, ideas for investment, we have to exercise a high level of humility because we need to understand that when we walk into those neighborhoods, we're carrying a legacy of decisions that came before us. So we've kind of boiled it down to a, a few different um, uh, focused areas. The first is to make sure that we do no harm. So as the agency that writes parking tickets and adjudicates those parking tickets, um, one of the first things I wanted to do was to freeze parking fine increases citywide to relax parking enforcement so that we were no longer going out and writing tickets and towing vehicles unless there were really significant safety issues, um, delayed when people needed to pay those things, uh, made transit free, and attempted to do everything we could to protect the transit operators that are, are uh, moving people on the bus. Um, the second is crisis response, and I talked a little bit about that, really um, remarkable sort of overnight uh, creation and delivery of services um, that we never thought we would be in the business of, of doing. But then the last two categories, I think, are the ones that probably a lot of the folks on this, um, listeners on this webinar are interested in, which is 
what are the opportunities um, that we have in front of us to emerge as we reopen um, our cities? I think first and foremost, every single department in the city of Los Angeles is now, must be now in the jobs creation business. Um, so nothing that we propose for transportation can be blind to the fact that um, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30% of the jobs that were there before the pandemic are not coming back. And the folks who are most deeply impacted by that are undocumented uh, Angelinos who are working in a, a whole bunch of jobs that, um, that won't return. So that, is, that has to be the grounding for how we think about and how we deliver um, or you know, any kind of opportunism. We have to make sure that the opportunity first and foremost is to get people back to work. But then what are the other opportunities that we have? I think that um, there are big opportunities to rethink how we deliver public transit. There are opportunities to rethink how we deliver uh, micro-mobility. There are opportunities to rethink how we design and deliver our streets. And right now in this moment, there are big opportunities to expedite projects that were already approved, um, but that might have taken a really long time to construct because of uh, all of the work that we have to do um, to manage the movement of traffic while construction is underway. So an example is that Metro, um, you know, the county transportation authority is able to expedite the construction of the Purple Line, which is really going to be an incredible um, game changer for UCLA and the west side of Los Angeles. Uh, because there's so little traffic right now, they're able to do things, close streets and do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. How can we think about that for protected bike lanes, for bus only lanes, for wider sidewalks for Vision Zero? And then how can we also think about these light touch tactical interventions um, that you see in some cities, slow streets or shared streets at places like Oakland and Denver and now New York today announced 100 miles. Um, but in all of those, the through line has to be, you know, how can we make sure that we are not coming in with a heavy handed top down approach that we do not, um, in our rush to get all of our all of these projects that we're really excited to see come to life, um, we do not do uh, damage that we don't intend to do by missing um, that centering and that grounding in the people that we're serving and in equity, which is what uh, what Susan mentioned. Well, thank you, Salida. You really touched on so many key questions here. Let me start with one, connect a few dots of what you were saying, and that is uh, with transit. So let me fra frame it a little bit is that we're seeing some trends and, you know, from a societal perspective going in the right direction, some going in the other direction, and there's some value judgments there. But the, the net effect of that is that we really need to figure out how to accelerate the good trends and mitigate the bad trends. And and that means policy. So you say not too much of a heavy hand, but you know, government does play a big role. And so let's focus on transit in particular. Transit already uh, for many years now has been losing ridership. And now of course it fell off the cliff the last couple months. And yet it provides, not only does it provide an essential service for many people, but in the larger sense, it plays an important economic role and you know to the to the, to the whole well-being of our cities and our and people so the question is um what do we do and i'll maybe let you salita start off with that a little bit and i know susan will have some ideas but you know we need to keep this discussion tight but um if you have some quick thoughts on how do we revive it you know susan raised that question how do we revive it? And what are some good ideas from a investment perspective, finance perspective, behavioral perspective? Yeah. A few, so, a few so good a couple, ideas. Couple good ideas, but well, couple ideas. <laughs> couple of, we're gonna have a no bad ideas session. How about that? And even if they're bad ideas, we're just gonna let them roll. Um, because that's where we need to be right now, right? We need to be in a place where we can really experiment with different ideas yeah. Um, and, and not be beholden to whatever our agendas were before the pandemic. Um, so I would say a couple things. Thing one is we should, we will always need high capacity trunk line transit, especially in cities. And I do believe that, uh, for example, on the Pico Union line, which is one of the only um, dash lines that sort of retained its ridership, 
we're now doubling the number of buses that we have on that line because we're limiting the number of riders. And so I think that in order to um, keep transit as that service that we elevate because it is so efficient, it will become even more important to preserve those, um, that kind of transit prioritization. And whether that's bus only lanes or, or uh, other bus rapid transit treatments, um, all of that stuff will be important. But then how could we think about, you know, taking public, thinking about public transit um, as a, a suite of things that we concession and that we deliver. So is there a pod of electric vehicles that's available on demand um, at low or no cost in low income neighborhoods um, to serve that, uh, to serve some of those off peak trips? Are there um, fleets of uh, municipal bike share, municipal um, scooter share, uh, including adaptive vehicles for people with disabilities um, that can be similarly made either really, uh, really low cost or free um, and that we think about them as part of our public transit, um, our, our public transit fleet, and we invest in them that way, so that we're not so reliant on the kind of boom and bust of the um, and the whims of the the private markets, but that we're actually there to provide that stable solid that stable solid funding. I also think that there could be some interesting conversations to be had about um, these systems inside systems. So you know. The state of emergency has allowed us to experiment with the way that we deliver public transit services to vulnerable populations and being able to design and custom design these routes that connect um, unsheltered Angelinos with hotels and motels and, and other kinds of, of services uh, to the YMCA and to um, temporary shelters. That has been a really eye-opening and interesting sort of um, idea for the role that mobility can play in connecting vulnerable populations to services and whether or not we ought to start designing some, some services like that. So Susan, um, building on that, how, you know, how adventurous, how revolutionary do we have to be with transit and, and uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think, I really think policy flexibility is needed now. And I think about this every day is we've got this big opportunity with the $25 billion that have been dedicated to public transit. A question that I have for those dollars, right? They could go to shoring up fares that aren't being paid. That's important, but we already have some data coming in um, from the transit center. They did some projections of shortfalls that say that over just the course of a 12 month period, we could be in a shortfall between 26 billion and 40 billion. And that's just with paying off, you know, those spare box revenues. So when we look at that 25 billion, a big question I have, Dan, thinking boldly about policy is can that funding be used more flexibly? You know, what would be the eligibility for it? And I think, you know, Salida provided some really beautiful examples of more context sensitive, people sensitive solutions. So trunk line, absolutely. We have to keep funding that and keep those trunk lines going. But in areas where uh, we might need more late night transportation services or we're in a more of a suburban or rural location, should we be thinking about other types of services like the, the microtransit services and, and what role micromobility itself can play? So I think what's really critical here is that we, we think out of the box and not in a traditional way. And I know that may sound um, really radical, but I think this is a time for us to be bold. So let me just uh, extend what you said just uh, a little bit, and that is that the way transit is funded is pretty much formulaic now. And a new way of thinking about it would be how do we provide uh, transport, public transportation that is more tailored to the user's needs, look at it from a user perspective. And that's actually a more people have talked about it, but it's a more revolutionary idea than, you know, people would think, but it really is revolutionary in the transit world. So let me ask one more question. Actually, I picked it up off the Q&A already coming in, but I couldn't, but I know it's something that the three of us have, are very keen on, and that is getting back to behavior. So the question is, how many of these behaviors we're seeing now, 
where people don't want it. People are afraid of sharing, being next to other people. Uh, and that's on planes, that's on buses. And, you know, you know, right away, Lyft and Uber canceled their pooling services. And yet, really, any way you look at transportation, the sharing is key to creating a sustainable transportation system. You know, whether you look at it from an economic perspective, an environmental perspective, or a social equity perspective. So, any thoughts on how the, whether, which of these behaviors are going to persist and to what extent? And you might add, what can we do about it from a policy perspective? So, Salita, why don't you take a first cut at that? Sure. Well, I, I remember um, a while ago, uh, Robert Schneider, who is a great um, uh, researcher, was involved in the TRB, Bicycle and Pedestrian Committees, for a while, did some pretty um, great work about when people are most likely to change their travel behaviors, and it's when there are big milestone events in their lives, right? When they get married, or they get their first job, or they graduate from college, or their kids go to off to school, um, that's the moment when they are willing to entertain things that they that are outside of their routine. So we are in a big moment of disruption, clearly, um, for a whole number of reasons that might allow us to think about what are the opportunities that pe that could open up, and which ones might might disappear. So, you know, oil futures are now negative because nobody wants to buy the stuff and there's nowhere to store it. Um, but how is the United States going to follow or, or get back in leadership position towards electrification um, with Europe and China in, in the moment we're in and not see uh, a big resurgence of driving? I was looking at the um, amazing mobility tracker that Apple Maps has been putting out. And depressingly, it's you know, showing what, we're, what we actually saw this last week in Los Angeles is that driving is starting to creep back up. Mm -hmm. um, cars are cheap right now. They're only going to get cheaper. And people have stored a lot of their debt in toxic car loans. And so there are going to be a lot of used cars that are going to get repossessed and come back onto the market at really low prices. So how can we make sure that um, we have a program, again, that aggressively invests in disentangling, to the extent that we can, auto ownership from auto access, and that when that auto access is important and necessary, it's electric. And how can we think about, you know, Susan was talking about um, flexible investment uh, ideas. One of those is the creation of a mobility wallet um, for folks that would allow them to access a large number of services um, and that would have actually um, provide them some uh, assistance in accessing those services and um, maybe even be able to disentangle identity from membership because we have a lot of folks uh, who live around MacArthur Park in Los Angeles um, who don't want to sign up for uh, you know an, an, an EV car sharing service because they don't trust the government with their identity um, because they're undocumented and they have worries about what that will mean. These are moments where transportation could sort of be leading the way and looking at integrated payments and mobility wallets for folks um, that that uh, put them, give them access to um, a lot of those services that that uh, help get them away from the idea that they need to rush back into buying a car. LADOT Transit was actually bucking the trend of ridership declines, and we're actually seeing some ridership increases because we had massively redesigned our service and increased frequency where people wanted to use it the most. Um, and I think those kinds of strategies can point the way. Susan, any thoughts on this? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think economics can really help. So I think in a sharing model, when people start to understand how much money they have fixed in a particular asset like a car, and they, they see that they may be able to take trips in other different ways, they may make the calculus to get rid of a car, right? And so we have a lot of people who may be losing their cars because of these toxic leases, and loans. And so an opportunity, I think, to get more into sequential sharing of vehicles like Salita's mentioned. I also think providing free transit would provide another one of those signals that, hey, I could take a certain amount of my trips on transit and others with shared modes. 
I think that in order to get people sharing again, we have to think about testing people. So making sure that we're doing our contact tracing and we're doing the testing of individuals so that we increase people's confidence that um, COVID isn't out everywhere. I think we can look at sanitizing these vehicles and a lot of the shared mobility companies are already doing this and looking at innovations to doing this. Uh, I also think we need to think about new design and form factors. How could we potentially have multiple people in a vehicle but provide protective types of seating? And they're looking at that, not just in, in vans themselves, but on airlines today. So these things, I think, can all come together to get people sharing and to share again. I think the, the closed pooled sharing um, concurrent sharing could be more of a challenge. Um, but I think we've got lots of things to, to work with, but I think behavioral economics is one that uh, could really um, suit us well. And the mobility wallet that Salita mentioned is part of, of providing people with seamless routing, booking, payment options, as well as transparency about their costs of transportation. Well, sounds like lots of good ideas there. Let's see what about implementation of some of them. All right, let's counting, we're counting on you, Salita. So Molly, let me turn it over. Dan, come on. <laughs> so Molly, um, you, you, uh, why don't you take it over in terms of some of the questions that are coming in? Great. Yes. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Uh, it's an honor to, for, to moderate this this uh, session, and obviously, there's some great ideas being. Around. We have an, uh, about 700 people have, have logged in on our webinar, so there's a number of questions in the Q&A, and we certainly will not get to all of them today, but we have some good ones, some of which have already been discussed. And so um, I think I'll just recognize that a number of people asked questions about how we can avoid a resurgence in single occupant driving after the worst of the pandemic sort of wanes. And this is a, a question that was repeated throughout um, by a number of people. This is getting at what we were just talking about, about opportunities for public transit. But um, I'll just ask if each of you could speak sort of to how we can envision a future where um, we don't see a huge surge in, um, in single occupant driving and, and, and what, I guess, um, addressing some of the other questions people said, how do you address concerns and fears? And we did speak to that already, but just, just how do we con consider the future going forward? Well, I, I'd like to cast a big vote for telecommuting as a potential tool to keep single occupant vehicles down and to also ensure public health. Telecommuting. Yes. You can hear the, the noises of, of my home uh, a little bit and, and, he, and uh, you know, obviously we'll all become, familiar with telecommuting uh, pros and cons. Salida? Oh, I, you know, I've been, um, I'm a, I, I, of course, I've, I'm engaged in a lot of very future-looking and future-leaning kinds of initiatives and conversations, and um, and I really enjoy the that, that work around transportation technology and digital transformation and, and autonomous vehicles and drones and the rest of it. Um, but I have found that uh, I have found myself uh, really just spending a ton of time reflecting deeply on um, how we are going to uh, make sure that as we emerge and as we invest our transportation dollars, how can we make them go as far as possible? How can we make sure they are creating jobs? How can we make sure they are actually delivering services? So, for example, uh, we have a program in Los Angeles called Play Streets where we open up streets and, and pull up a, a box of play and turn a street into a park for a day in, in neighborhoods where um, people don't have access to open space. Um, a lot of cities have programs like that. And uh, I learned that Philadelphia, for example, uses it to actually distribute meals to kids um, during the summer when they don't have access to the meal programs at their schools. And I feel like the, that kind of thinking um, is really where I think we're going to derive the most satisfaction about the future. I think that it will be incredibly frustrating uh, for any and all of us to try and control sort of the massive return to single occupant vehicles because um, I just believe the form of our American cities uh, and land use has made it such that um, it, that that may be something that we that that is very very difficult to push back on. 
Um, however, in the moment that we have, in the moment that we're in, we can certainly reset the table for a different kind of conversation about the role of mobility in society, about how our dollars ought to be invested, um, and really about loosening up and thinking about how can we give people access to the transportation option they need without um, the sort of uh, rush to return to buying a vehicle because that economic burden is going to be um, such in a lot of, for a lot of households um, that they uh, that they won't be able to, uh, to they'll have to choose between owning a home and owning a car. Yeah, and I'll just add, so the equity cons concern is a very real one. There are many people that either don't have a car or it's expensive or it's unreliable cars. Um, so let me tell a, a little personal note on that. I took the past year to go carless to mm -hmm. see both for professional reasons as well as I just believed in it. And it really became obvious to me that we need to do a much better job of linking these modes and supporting these other modes much better and thinking about um, how do we use policy to accomplish that and how do we support industry and businesses to do that. You know, I did it because I knew Lyft and Uber were available as a last resort at any time. Um, it tends to be expensive, but it actually is much cheaper than owning a car, by the way. And so, you know, somehow changing the, the, the mindset to think about these other modes, whether it's scooters and bikes, providing better uh, infrastructure, safe infrastructure for bikes and scooters, to supporting uh, integration of public transportation with some of these ride sharing services and with the micro mobility, you know, really getting our leaders and, you know, focus on that and getting people to be thinking about those options and of course dealing with the whole sharing notion and overcoming some of the fears of that. Okay, Molly, got another uh, good question for us? Uh, absolutely. So, so there was a mention of micro, micro mobility um, and I think that it's a, it's a topic that has come up a lot in the Q&A about our opportunities for uh, embracing micro mobility by that I mean e-scooters and um, and shared bikes, um, and and also um, you know and how that can play a role in both a response to a, a, a COVID nineteen crisis, and also you know sort of how do we transition towards um, more use of these of these devices in the future? So that that's a question a theme of many questions in that from the audience. So we've got a lot of bike and scooter fans. Okay, so we can hear from the regulator and the academic here. <laughs> so what do you say, Salida? You've dealt with this firsthand. Yeah, and I was really excited when those services showed up and worked really hard to figure out how we could build a system um, so that I didn't have to, I wasn't going to put my finger on the scale of the market and I was going to let as many companies come in and operate as many different business models and that remains my focus, and not just for bikes and scooters, but all of the form factors that are we see emerging, right? Uh, mopeds and um, even you know little delivery robots or other kinds of um, vehicles that we see coming into the marketplace. And so I, I think you know our our goal was always to create a, a future-proof set of regulations, and we fought really hard to make sure that we designated those as essential transportation services. There was a lot of um, concern about them from, uh, you know, reasonable concerns from the public and from policymakers. Can we guarantee that they're clean? Can we make sure that they don't um, create more uh, a of a viral vector for people? Um, and so we put out some sort of uh, guidelines and requirements for companies to clean their vehicles on a regular basis and push education information to people who are using those services. Um, but I, I think that what's important, because I've, I've seen some hot takes on micromobility, not from anybody on this panel, um, that are like, public transit is now part of the problem. Scooters are going to save us. And I just find that to be, first of all, incredibly ableist. You know, there are a lot of people who will are, are not going to be able to use scooters. Older adults, people with disabilities, they're just not. It's also um, not uh, mindful of all of the reasons why women might not feel comfortable on themselves on a, on a scooter out in public um, and why in certain neighborhoods, uh, you know, um, uh, black, uh, brown, people of color, indigenous people of color don't feel comfortable on 
um, scooters and bikes out in public spaces because of profiling and other things. So we have to be really thoughtful about there aren't, there's no panacea. This is a really important part of an overall puzzle. And we cannot just talk about that part of the puzzle because we will alienate all of the other folks who desperately need other kinds of, of choices for how to get around. But I'll just comment, uh, Salida, I love, you're the, for me, the model policymaker because you are saying, let's, you know, if you say Uber, you know, many mayors and city council say, ah, congestion, pollution. If you say scooters, they say, you know, havoc and danger. And so, you know, it's a new mindset is needed to think about transportation in a more forward-looking way. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you Lita, for your leadership in micromobility and with the mobility data specifications. Um, you've done a lot um, to move the discussion around access to data forward. And I think many of us are very grateful to you for your, your leadership in that. I wanted to just say a few things um, to tag on to um, Slita and Dan's remarks. Uh, I think micromobility is a fabulous thing. I think walking is really fabulous too. And I, I love the idea of micromobility, raising people's awareness of the importance of physical activity. I think that's really good for our overall public health and for the, our emissions. So I think looking at this as an opportunity is, is wonderful in the context of COVID, but I do want to raise a few um, flags here. So I, I do a lot of work on social equity. And one of the things that I, I am aware of is that some of these bikes and scooters aren't getting into the hands of the low-income individuals so that when we look to where the, the, the scooters are winding up or where they start their day, they aren't as accessible to some of those individuals. So I really want us to think about if we bring everything back after COVID-19, how do we ensure social equity? And maybe that comes by looking at rental models as opposed to uh, pay-by-the-minute models I also wanted to raise an issue related to uh, financial longevity of uh, shared micromobility companies. For example, there's been a lot of um, discussion about those models needing more uh, subsidy or more support. So there's been um, quite a bit of analysis out there if you if you check it out on companies like Bird about um, a low number of um, rentals per day per vehicle. And in the car sharing world where I cut my teeth, that was one of the key metrics we would look at every single day in order to know whether or not we were in viability land. So we may need to also revisit um, this idea of the financial model for shared micromobility um, moving forward, because I don't think the financial model of this is solved. Absolutely. Yep. I think let's just have a closing quick comments from Salida and Susan. Any thoughts before we turn it back to Molly? I mean, we, we said a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I guess I would say, you know, for me, for, for all of my peers in transportation, you know, whatever your agenda was before the pandemic, and I'm sure they were all great, it's not the time to double down on that. It's the time, if there is any clearer indication that the universe wanted us to pause and listen and reflect, uh, it's this. And so, you know, the virus has exposed all kinds of things about transportation mobility and the way that society operates and depends on the services we deliver. It's, it, it really is time for us to have a different kind of conversation about the purpose of what we do and who it serves and how we do it going forward. Um, and so that's my, my plea is just um, get out of your silo, talk to somebody that it works in a field that's unfamiliar to you um, and try and forge those new partnerships that Susan talked about because that's the way we're going to come out of this better and stronger um, than we were when we went in because going back to normal um, isn't really the best pathway forward. Let's move into something special and exciting and new um, that we can't even envision yet. Amen. Susan? Yeah, I, I, I just want to um, make a plea for us to really consider the lives of people who have lost their jobs, who are in serious distress, who have to make really difficult decisions between paying a car loan, paying rent, and getting food and health care. 
I think we've got to really move quickly to ensure that they are not left behind and that we find jobs for them and we figure out how to make mobility work better for them because these spatial mismatches that we have between jobs and work, um, they, they don't make their lives any easier. And so I just really think we've got, got it all come together. This is a, a really important moment in time. Um, it's the most pivotal moment in my life in transportation. And, and I think we should seize the day. Thank you. And I'll say thank you to both of you. And I'll, you know, for a phenomenal hour together. And Molly, take us home. Thank you, Dan. Um, and, you know, I wish we had more time because there are um, about 100 questions we did not answer. Um, so, you know, the time always goes so short. But um, we, we will um, look at the questions that were asked and, and, and aim to put them into sort of categories because there was some themes throughout the questions and try to address those ca those categories together and, and follow up with you. We, we have published a blog article on this topic that addresses a lot of the questions that were asked. Um, so uh, we'll also uh, share that with you. Um, it's on our its.ucdavis.edu website. Um, the next uh, webinar from our Three Revolutions Future Mobility Program series um, is once again on May 18th at 2 p.m. And the focus will be on equity, community, and the Three Revolutions. Um, we're really looking forward to having you all join us for that. Um, so we can continue the conversation um, that we had here today. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm hopeful with the number of people that came to, to participate in this in this event, that it's possible that the postponement or the cancellation of the Three Revolutions Policy Conference will end up being um, an opportunity for us to address some of these very serious issues that Susan and Dan and Salida have brought up today, bring uh, mobility to people who who needed it and um, and really address the climate issues that we that we face. So, um, with that, thank you all so much for for, for staying with us for this hour, and um, I'll see you again in mid May. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.